Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Heavenly Father, hear our prayer this morning. May all that we do this morning glorify you. Let us sing your praises continually. May our hearts rejoice in your goodness and grace. Reveal yourself in a mighty way this morning, we pray. Refresh our spirits that we may develop a longing, thirst, and hunger for your word and presence. For we acknowledge that our hearts have wandered. We are easily distracted by the cares of this world and the detraction it offers. We have sought to satisfy our appetites with its offerings, not considering the cost nor our commitment and allegiance to you. Forgive us of this sin in neglecting your kindness and your providence and your mercy. Let us take to heart the command to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by the testing that we may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we ask for the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that has been promised for those that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for hearing our prayer this morning. May the Holy Spirit speed our groanings to the Advocate, your Son, who intercedes on our behalf. And we humbly ask for open hearts and the strength to follow you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. We have a good God. Take your Bibles and turn to James, if you would. We're going to turn a little bit in our Bibles, so I pray that you bring them. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. We have discovered in our exploration of the letter of James, written to the Jewish believers that have been dispersed because of the persecution in Jerusalem, that our works and our words and our wisdom validates our profession of faith. It validates whether our faith is saving faith or just an intellectual or cultural type of faith. James has been teaching the Jewish believers that wisdom and humility will lead to the peace will lead to peace in the house of God and that's where we left off last week. And once again, he gives them an invitation to step up and to prove their faith. Follow through is so important for those that have professed their faith in Christ. James wrote that there were two kinds of wisdom, worldly wisdom that led to disorder and to sin and godly wisdom that leads to peace. And righteousness. He also warned them that competing desires is what leads to war in the house of God. Disagreements will happen, but they should not come at the cost of losing one's Christian testimony. And we spoke of how many of us have experienced that in churches. There will be problems in the church community, yes, but that's the importance of peacemakers, similar to what we read just a little bit earlier in our scripture reading on the Sermon of the Mount, especially in the midst of a hostile environment that's outside the church. This is our sanctuary. This is our refuge. 
And we call the words of the Apostle Peter, who urged us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our soul, and to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. And that catches us up to where we are in James 4, 4 through 10. In today's passage, as we look at these six, seven verses, we'll see that we have a choice on whether to be an enemy or exalted in the eyes of God. James begins verse 4 with a very strong accusation and a rebuke against some of the believers in the church community. Like their ancestors, Joshua, who said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. James strongly urges the believers to repent of their actions that led to unfaithfulness and to faithfully serve their God. As we read through this passage, as we're about to do, I'm going to ask you and show that you should notice as we read through there the actions of the Christians, of the Jewish believers, of their unfaithfulness. You're going to see God's reaction is one of jealousy, and His response is to give grace. And we see that their response that James is calling for is one of repentance, and God responds to their repentance with exaltation. With that, let's read through this scripture, James 4, 4 through 10. It's there on the screen if you'd like or in your Bibles. James writes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Father, this is our prayer. Father, we pray for humble hearts. But yet many of us are, are so encumbered with a prideful spirit. Father, it resists your spirit at every point. And Father, we pray that you would just envelop us with your love. Open up your word to us that we may receive it and that we may respond with a faithful heart. Bury this deep down into good tilled soil that it may reap a hundredfold. Let us not quench the spirit this morning. Be with me as I speak. Let me speak words that are edifying. Let me speak words that build up. Father, let us differentiate between your word and my opinion. The Lord, that you may be glorified. We pray this in the name of your Son. And all of God's people said, Amen. And with that, let's go into God's word. The thing that you need to understand as we get into this, this verse is that Christians, believers, are given by God to Christ as a precious treasure. You and I must realize is that you and I, if we profess Christ, if we've been chosen as His children, we have been given by God to Christ as a precious treasure. You are God's possession. You belong to God, not yourself. We are bought with the price, as Paul tells us. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John chapter 17. And you'll see this very, very clearly in Jesus' prayer for His disciples. 
as he's getting ready to go to the cross. In John chapter 17, he's lifting up a prayer to the Father. And he says these words that, that should encourage and comfort you and I. In John chapter 17, join with me in verse 6, where Jesus is praying and he says, I have manifested your name, speaking to the Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And let's, if you want, you can just underline all those times where you see that, that gives and that you gave me out of the world. Out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 7, now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you had sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have what? Given me for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Not of the world, but in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You and I must realize that we belong to God. And God has given us to Christ as his bride. We are not our own. We do not belong to anyone. We are claimed by somebody else. And that's very important as we continue on. As he's going to put this in 4 through 10, he's referencing a, a marriage relationship. And that relationship is we are betrothed. We belong to someone else. You see, God has a claim on us as His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is similar to the relationship that God has with Israel when He promised Abraham in Genesis that He would make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God also extended that promise to, to Moses when he said in Exodus, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. Scripture goes on to write, Of all the nations of the earth that I have created, he says to Israel, I have claimed you. Not because of who you are, not because you were greater or more intelligent or more lovely than all of them, but I have made you as my own. You and I, belong to Christ. We are God's and given to Christ. We're not our own. In Ephesians chapter 5, turn to that, we get on to see that marriage, though created well long before the church, was actually created to give us a preview, a snapshot of the relationship between Christ and the church. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul writes this, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself his Savior. But listen to this, verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Husband, love your wives again. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present 
the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So we belong to God, and he desires, just as any man desires, is a pure, beautiful bride. And he he wants us to be pure in that way, and God is in the process of doing that through his Spirit. So we must understand that Christians, believers, we are given by God to Christ as a precious treasure. Once you and I understand that, then we can understand a little bit more fully here of what James is about to do in verse 4. For he says here in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is intimacy with God? He says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God's. Or do you suppose it's no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit he has dwelled with us? You see it already, the point's there. The second point you must understand is that God does not look favorably on unfaithfulness. We are His possession. He desires for us to yearn for Him. Here we see a strongly worded rebuke and accusation in verse 4. He charges them with unfaithfulness and of being an adulteress. And obviously in those times, those would be some of the most harmful and hurtful words to be. It actually would cause you to, to the penalty of that was, was death. So this is a strong rebuke that he's giving. He says you're being unfaithful. He says you're not faithful to your husband. You're yearning for something else. These are harsh words indeed. He then proceeds to tell them how they've been unfaithful. I could imagine them saying, wait a second, how have we been unfaithful to you? We're serving here. We're being persecuted by not only the pagans, the Gentiles, but also by the Jews for accepting you as Messiah. We've left our homeland. We've lost our our homes. We've lost our way of living. Many of us are living in poverty. How have we been unfaithful to you? I think that's a good question. They're starting to look inward and say, wait a second, these are harsh words. Why do you accuse us? He tells them very simply, you've been unfaithful by flirting with the world. You see, friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. They have a flirtation going on with the things of the world. We have to remember the Apostle John commands us in his first letter to not love the world, does he not? Nor the things in the world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, he says the love of the Father is not in him. The things of the world are not of God. You may ask, well, how have they become friends of the world? Well, we've studied them over the last few weeks. In chapter 2, we saw that they were discriminating against people economically, the rich and the poor. They were in chapter 3, they were speaking negatively of each other, gossiping and cutting each other down. In verse 3, they were exhibiting envy and selfish ambitions in their dealings with each other. And in chapter 4, they were pursuing their own destructive pleasures. You see, instead of standing against the culture of the world, they were adopting the practices of the world. And in the process, they were becoming salt that has lost its taste and no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on. Instead of being friends with the world, you and I are called to bear the cross of Christ 
And when you and I bear the cross of of Christ, when we deny the things of the world, you and I, the, the reaction from the world will not to be a friend, but to be hated. Because it hated him. In John chapter 15, if you have yourself still in John, you can look at chapter 15 and verse 18, where he tells us that if the world hates you, know this, that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are the world, the world would love you as it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of it, therefore the world hates you. And here we are. We are flirting with those that hate us. Could you imagine if your wife was cheating or flirting with the person that hated you the most or the person that you did not like the most? There'd be something even more terrible about that. But yet, that's what he's accusing the Christians of doing. He says, you're looking at the world, and you're looking at her beauty, you're looking at her attraction, and you're looking for her to satisfy your needs. Instead of the gifts of a good, loving God. And God says that's not to be so. To be of the world is to be the enemy of God. It's to go back to being disobedient children, rebellious and objects of His wrath. We forget that so many times. And it's so sad today that many churches seem to to, to adopt the practices of the world in our music and in our speech and in the way that we dress and the things that we like. We forget in Romans that the Bible says that they are guilty, those who do such things, and he lists all these things. And we forget that it also says those who give approval. You say, well, I don't give approval to those things that are wrong, those things that are evil. Well, sure we do. When we watch them on the TV screen, when we watch them on the movies, when we when we look for those things and pay money for them, we're approving of those things. In our voices and in our talk with each other, we say that we're against that, but yet, when it comes into our living rooms via the TV screen, we may just fast forward a little bit, but yet we're still involved in it. We find ourselves spending our money and spending our time and pursuing the same things that they desire, their own kingdom, forgetting that it's God's kingdom that you and I are to be advancing and not the world's. Let me ask you, what ways have you adopted the world's practices in your thinking, in your spending, in the way you spend your time and your finances, in the way that you deal with your family? In what ways have you adopted the thinking of the world in which you're looking for entertainment and pleasures? And not that there's anything wrong with many some, some of the things that we do, but we have to, again, we need to look. In what ways are we flirting with someone other than our husband? We do that so often, many times without even any shame. Many times because we're not thinking about it. Because our minds are not set on the things of God. He tells us in Colossians chapter 3, Set your affections on things above, not on things in the earth. But you and I, so many times, is we've got those blinders on, and all we do is we see what the world has to offer. And truly, what we, all we want for Christ is we just want to get out of hell free card. We just want fire insurance. The Bible says count the cost. 
It's not a simple prayer that gets you into the gates of heaven, but it's denying yourself, picking up the cross, and following Him. We spoke earlier in Sunday school, in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, Paul says, those that live godly lives will face persecution. And we made just a, a little claim that if you're not facing persecution today, it's probably because you're not living godly lives. Some of you aren't hated by the world, you're embraced by the world. Not only are you embraced by the world, but you yourself are embracing also. So the challenge here, he says, you're an adulteress. You're an adulterer. You're being unfaithful. These are harsh words. But they may be true. You and I need to look and say, are we friends with God? Or are we friends with the world? Cannot do both. So many of us, we run through life having a spouse, but trying to have a boyfriend, a girlfriend on the side, and it should not be so. Should not be so. We ourselves are guilty of spiritual adultery. You see, James is simply calling them to declare your attentions. Are you married or are you not? Will they be like Joshua or will they be like Israel? As God declared through the prophet Jeremiah, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Let that not be said of you. Let that not be said of us. Let it not be said of OVBC. Let us be a church that's faithful as the bride of Christ. So not only is friendship with the world spiritual adultery, but he also tells us in those three verses there that God is a jealous God. Not only have we been adulterous, flirtating with the world, but it says God is a jealous God. He does not look on that with favor. Just as a, uh, an earthly husband, an earthly wife would not look favorably on that, nor does God. In verse 5, James declares that God is jealous when it comes to his possessions. We see this in Isaiah 54, where he says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth is he called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And concerning the church, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, you may write this down, 11 verse 2, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Again, we have been presented. We are already married. We are not singles looking to mingle, right? We, are, we have one husband that we've been betrothed to. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. And this may cause some of you to pause and wonder, what's going on here? Didn't James just condemn them for selfish ambition and jealousy just a couple of verses ago when he said, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice? Yes, he did. James did. But again, remember what jealousy is. 
I shared this with you several times. Jealousy is a debt that says God owes me. When you and I are jealous of a girl because of her shoes, when we're jealous of a man because of his job, or we're, we're jealous of something, we're saying God owes me. It's a debt that says God owes me. He should have gave me that too. He should have given me a better job. He should have made me taller. He should have gave me more hair. Oh, wait, that's me. I'm sorry. Uh, he should have done these things. That's what jealousy is. God owes me. That's what jealousy is. It's not that that person owes you. It's that God owes you. But in this case, God owes no one. For it's God who is owed that debt. Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's what it means when he's jealous over the spirit of man. It is God who created us. It is God who gave us life. It is God who adopted us and redeemed us, forgiven us of our sins and given us Christ's righteousness. And since we belong to him, he is due faithfulness, not flirtation with other gods. Flirtation is not acceptable. In essence, James is reminding them by asking, who are you sworn to? Who are you committed to? Who is your allegiance to? Who is your loyalty due? God is a jealous God. Now in verse 5, there's some extra credit just off the side that I need to give you. Because it's, it's a phrase that many times we just jump to because we're wanting to get to that God is jealous. But in verse 5, James writes this phrase. Do you suppose... It is of no, or excuse me, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say? You and I need to think about that little phrase. Because that phrase is packed with a mighty punch right to the solar plexus. It takes the breath right out of them and out of us, or it should. It's a good thought on the importance of Scripture and how much importance you and I put on the purpose of God's revelation. So many times you and I read and hear the Scriptures and then we put it out of our mind. Today, when you leave today, many of you will not be thinking about this message the rest of the week until I put something on there for you. Or we would go back to it next Sunday. You won't even speak about it in your drive home or maybe with your children. And let me tell you, that's what we should do. These messages are more than just me filling time and giving you some information. It's about transformation. It's about saying, how does this relate to me? Could you, could you help me? Is this something that I need to respond to? So many times we read and hit the scriptures and then we put it out of our minds. And you and I go on to live our lives as if Scripture has no bearing on our decision and life choices. Hence he says, do you suppose that it's no purpose that Scripture says? In other words, am I just writing this down just for the heck of it? Have you ever felt like that as a parent? You give an instruction, you give a command, you tell your children, and it's like, what am I just, am I just doing this for nothing? Doesn't this have no purpose? James is telling him, why are you acting like this? You think Scripture's not there for a purpose? It is. And let me tell you, one day you and I will stand before God and we'll give account according to God's revelation to us. 
God is a jealous God. We belong to Him. We need to really understand that spiritual adultery is a serious offense to a holy God. For it's Christ's desire to put us pure before God. Number three, God has called us to repent and follow Him. Once the charge is out there, God says you must repent and follow me. Verse 6 begins with a great declaration. I want to spend just a moment just on that phrase. Look at that first phrase. But he gives more grace. I love that word but. That word but says, I know you've done this. I know you've been guilty. I know you've been flirting. I know you've been unfaithful. But I give more grace. How much grace would you give your spouse if they were flirting or unfaithful to you? Would you give them grace? Would you be condemning? Would you bring up arms? Would you grab the lawyers? Would you start claiming possessions and looking for a way out? God doesn't do that. He gives more grace. The great church father, Augustine, wrote that God gives what he demands. He demands our allegiance, he demands our obedience and our faithfulness, but yet many times, time after time, you and I will fail. We will struggle with that. There are times that the glittering off the jewels of the world becomes so blinding and the attraction is so strong that you and I just put our tails between our legs and we follow after it. But God says... I give more grace. You see, it is by grace that we have been redeemed. It is by grace that we have been saved from His wrath. It is by grace that we have been adopted into His family. And it is by grace that you and I are sustained in this life until that day that we'll be reunited with Him and glorified. Though you and I were once alienated from God, We were once disobedient children and objects of His wrath. God showed His kindness through Jesus Christ. And Scripture tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead you and I to repentance. The proud are only met with resistance, while those that are humbled are accepted. As He says, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me ask you, would you like to take the grace that is in God's hand today? Yes, of course. God says even to the adulterous wife, as he says in Hosea, I will take you back, I will clean you up, and I will give you a new dress, and I will resent you as my wife. If you've struggled with flirtation and spiritual adultery, God says, I will take you back. You are mine. I will never forsake you and leave you. It's a husband who is left at home as his wife is trampling out with other men. He yearns for us and he desires. And like the father of the prodigal son, he comes running to us when our pride is broken and we humbly come to him. And as Luke 15 tells us, that father ran. And Christ who is that shunned husband, 
responds in the same way, taking his bride and embracing her. For he gives more grace. Repentance is the mark of a changed heart. God graciously changed our hearts towards him. He made us see him. He opened up our heavy, scaly eyes that we may see his true beauty. He removed our own stony heart full of rebellion and he replaced it with a fleshly heart that beats with love and a devotion to serve him faithfully. The mark of repentance is a humble and a contrite heart. So in verse 7, James gives them a series of commands to prove that their confession, that Jesus is Lord, is genuine and true. Look at verse 7. He's going to give us three commands with two promises while he finishes his rebuke. He says, submit yourself therefore to God. That's what you need to do. Just as a wife submits herself to her husband in love and respect and honor, we're to do so to God. And that's the call that I have for you this morning. Would you submit to the God who has embraced you? Would you submit to His beauty? Would you submit to His grace, His love, and His call for you? He says, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. There is a promise. Resist him and he'll flee. Many of you are so like me. We're fighting sin. We're fighting the attraction to the world. We find ourselves flirting and it flirting back. And we're, we're drawn to it. But we have to recognize that when Satan comes at us with his attraction, with his false fruit, even as look good as it looks, as well as it tastes, we must recognize that we need to resist it. And he'll walk away. Resist, the Bible says, and the devil will flee from you. He gives us another command with a promise. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Just as a husband will take his wife and embrace her, she will embrace even more so. That's what God is saying. Draw near to me and I'll draw nearer to you. Many times the reason that we're struggling, many times the reason why the flirtation seems so strong is because we're drawing away from God rather than drawing near to Him. We find ourselves like the dog who's looking for a squirrel everywhere. Here's our husband, our God, our, our Savior, drawing one to us, and we find ourselves with our heads turned and our feet go where we're looking. Draw near to God, he says, and he'll draw near to you. And then he gives a rebuke and a command. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now James has spoken about the double-minded man two or three times prior to this. This is something that he wants us to understand. In the house of God, there may be some of you that are still double-minded. You profess Christ, but yet you're still trying to live in the world. And he says, you must not do that. He says in James 1 that you're unstable in all of your ways. I don't re-preach that statement, but we need to recognize that a double-minded man is not something that you and I need to be, a double-minded man or a double-minded woman. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Why? Because we cannot be married to one and be a, have a wandering eye. 
that does not lead to good marriage, right? It does not lead to one. Our focus must be on the one that, who owns us, the one who we've been given to. In verse 9, he goes on to say, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Now, this is a strange phrase that we're about to see here, these sentences here, these commands, where he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. That seems, that seems odd. Why should I do those things? He says, Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's similar to the language of the prophets used in reaction to God's judgment. In Joel chapter 2, verses 12, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, live it out, just don't go through the actions. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. What are we seeing there? What is he talking about being wretched and mourn and weep? Well, he's obviously using Jesus' teaching on repentance. As we read earlier in the Sermon of the Mounts, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are mourned. In other words, he says, live out your repentance. It's not just saying, oh, I'm sorry, but it's a change of mind. It's a change of heart that shows I'm moving in a different direction. So he's saying to the spiritual adulteress, the one who flirts with the world, he says, you must totally repent. Turn toward me. Bear fruits bearing with repentance. Show that you truly are repentant, that you have received the grace of God. Once again, James is probably influences or influenced by Jesus' teaching in Luke 18, where he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When he says in that last line there, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In closing, James reminds them that they are God's treasured possession. And he is a jealous God who will not tolerate their flirtation with the world. But instead, he calls them to repent and draw near to them. God's grace still abounds. And just as God is warning those Jewish believers 2,000 years ago about their unfaithfulness, so God is warning you and I today. So this here is not speaking of someone else's story, for you and I are involved in that story as well. That warning comes uh, very clear to us this morning. As I'm going to ask you, in what ways have you become friends with the world? In what ways have you adopted the practices of the world? In what ways have you not been faithful to your God. And let me ask you, does your life show the marks of repentance? Is your heart still filled with pride who raises his fist at God and says, yes, but I want this, but I want that. You're not a good husband, God. You're not a good God. You don't provide for me. You don't take care of me. You don't meet my needs. That is a proudful heart that does not understand the grace of God. Choose them today, would you?
May God exalt you at that great day of the Lord. Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word. For this word here will step on each and every one of our toes and each and every one of our hearts should be pricked before there are many ways in which we have flirted with the world. There are many ways that we have adopted and become friends of the world. There are many here that have counted the cost and are still struggling in making the choice. I pray that you would demolish, Father, all pride that exists in any heart this morning. And Father, if it's your will that you would crush it and that you would crush our spirits that we may see you and that through your grace in that crushing that we may see how beautiful you are that we may see how wonderful that you are, and that we may claim you as our treasured possession as you claim us. Father, protect us from Satan and his works, for he seeks to, to draw us away, and we are so fickle, Lord, in our, in, our, in, our, in our affections for you. Strengthen him. Lord, gear us for the battle that's ahead. And Father, if there's any here that you are calling for the first time, to come and choose and trust in you. Lord, I pray that they would do so today. It's not a simple prayer. It's just following and seeing the cost and following you. May they make that choice this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, who makes all things possible, we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.